Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVM-FM, Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Hey, thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song, Really appreciate your work, Walter. WalterParks.com for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM down there in Asheville on Wall Street. Hey, we couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A. V-E. And I'd like to remind you, we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing and dance with your imagination and your rational mind all at the same time, imaginativestorm.com is where you will find ways to do that. So today I have a, a guest. She's based out of Asheville. She's in another land right now, uh, Donaglee Williams. And we worked a little bit together in the Artist Way community in Asheville for a while. And she's an author. She's a poet, public speaker, a workshop facilitator, a world traveler, a person with questions, questions in her eyes. So Donna Glee, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. It is so good to be here with you. Even before I was one of the many, many people that benefited from the Artists' Way groups that you did, you came to the North Carolina Center for the Advancement of Teaching to help some of the teachers there do some imaginative storm writing. So our connection goes back even further. Now, what brought us together now was uh, our mutual friend and connect, Barry Barton, who is the most amazing amazing uh, helper of sparks get from person to person. Uh, so she's the reason we're here today. Well, Donna Glee, thank you for reminding me of all that. I do remember doing that conference. Gosh, it must have been ages ago now. Barry is one of my favorite characters. And for those of you listening in Asheville, you will know that she has a, a speech and presentation business, Stand and Deliver, it's called. And for those of you in Taos, hey, it's a global world. Stand and Deliver is also searchable from Taos as well. You're a poet. Are you a poet first? Or is poetry something that just threads its way through your life? Uh, what do you do primarily to poetically keep all these things rolling down the beautiful stream? Well, that's a, a, a sweet question. I, I think... I am primarily a journal keeper, and I do journaling as a spiritual practice uh, and also do dream journaling as a spiritual practice, and things that go into the journal sometimes come out as poetry and sometimes come out as story and sometimes come out as, I blush to say it, nonfiction. I, been noticing that on this last uh, trip that I'm just taking great pleasure in sharing the the wonders of of Scotland through my Facebook friends. Crafting the words for that is giving me pleasure. So I don't know that I'm primarily any category. I find that sometimes with my 
my fiction work too, people say, well, are you a fantasy writer or a writer writer? Or are you a, a young adult writer or an adult writer? And, you know, I have a hard time categorizing myself and other people have a hard time categorizing me, even champion categorizers. I didn't know there was such a thing as a champion categorizer. I can introduce you to some. Well, I would love to meet one. I did learn recently from a friend of mine, Eliza Santiago, that that in the world of fountain pens, you can find a nib master. And the nib master is the one who trims the nib to suit your personality. Oh, I did not know this. And, And I have actually been to the nib museum in Birmingham, and I did. I still did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know it either. She said that the great nib master lives in in Japan and sharpens the nibs like a like a beautiful knife, or so she said. I believe Eliza too. Let me ask you something about journaling. You said it was a, it's a spiritual practice. When you use that word spiritual. How do you mean spiritual? And do you find that your sensibilities around the more refined awareness of the greater dynamics of the universe, do they also show up in other writing as well? Why only journaling as a spiritual practice? I guess for me, that's where it starts, where it all starts. More than a quarter century ago, um came on to the idea of Natalie Goldberg's um, rules for writing as a spiritual practice. And they have been for me, and obviously I've developed my own approach to that, but but that was a starting place. Uh, they have been for me the way to open myself to the wisdom beyond the conscious mind or or to the um, experience beyond rational uh, planning, thinking kinds of things. So it all starts with the fast, timed writing, no going back, no correcting, no, no thinking aloud as much as possible. And then, something I would have to call guidance comes. And that's where I just keep going. And I did my last book, the one that's coming out in July, uh, The Night Field, using exactly the same process that I use for my morning pages, setting uh, an alarm for 25 minutes, writing like mad for 25 minutes, then going back shifting that from handwriting into the computer, which is sort of the first pass at crafting, at shaping, and then setting that little alarm again and doing it again. And and if people read my books, they will notice they do not come in chapters. They come in clumps, and that's because I write that way. One of the things that I learned from Hemingway that relates to writing that way is he he observed that it is always easier to come back if you break off 
in the middle of flow. Like if you carry a scene through to where it's completed, then next morning you have to come back and somehow find a way in again. He was, of course, long before Natalie Goldberg's idea of, of setting a timed practice. But but if you sort of break the flow when you are in on a roll, uh, and then the next day you come back, that roll is still there. It's easy to jump back in. You, it's easy to run with the ball and, and get back in. And, and then you know, you start again when that gets completed and something else needs to be started, but easier if you, um, you know, interrupt yourself uh, with some momentum. You know, I tend to do 10 minute timed writings instead of 25 minutes. Maybe that's because my attention span doesn't last for 25 minutes, but I found those little 10 minute bursts to be quite satisfying because you get about two and a half pages and then you stop and come back later and do it again. So I suppose the timing, regardless of whether it's 10, 5, 20, 25, whatever it is, there's something about the deadline aspect of the timer that might have a containment that allows the psychology to be more free. What do you think? You know, I I hadn't actually thought that side of it, the container. I have thought the other side, the push to fill the container, because I will find that when I am writing and and, you know, I didn't start at 25. Uh, This is something I've sort of pushed up to over the years. And I will start folks that are working with me at three minutes or five minutes. For me, some of it has to do with during the first part of a writing, I write what I already knew that I knew. And when I push past what I knew that I knew, that's when uh, I move into writing the things that I didn't know. And that's what opens the door for lightning strikes. That's what opens the door for uh, guidance from beyond the conscious mind, which is what I'm really most interested in. What you don't know idea is interesting. My creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and I have a project called the Imaginative Storm Writing Project, and we just finished a book called Write What You Don't Know, 10 Steps to Writing with Confidence, Energy, and Flow. And over the years, I've done this imaginative storm method, as you've seen when I came to work with the teachers and in other times that you've been involved with me. You've seen the ideas. Just throw the words on the board, let your imagination jump around a little bit, come up with something fanciful, and then make something of it. So during the pandemic time, Allegra and I spent five hours a day or more for seven months, maybe, codifying what the imaginative storm was all about. How does it work? What What's there? And we came up with 40 different steps divided into 10 chapters that start from the kaleidoscope of the mind, spinning the mind, letting it just be freeform, to a finished memoir or a finished piece of work. And, and the idea that we came up with was to stay in the rational mind. Do not get out of your rational mind. Let your imaginative mind lead the dance and put the Mm. two together in collaboration. So often we say, I'm going to get out of my my rational mind. And by doing that, I will free it. But we started to think, and I, I came to think this as well, 
the rational mind, you can never get out of it. And why would you? It's what keeps the car on the road. If you let it have some nurturing by way of the imagination, then it blossoms in its true form. So that's where that's where we landed in terms of that relationship between form and, and imagination. And that idea of write what you don't know, you actually know it. You just didn't know, haven't noticed it lately. Some of the difference might be where we started. You know, I started out as an incredibly rational person with a very unpeaceful relationship with the woo-woo side of life. And, and so my direction of growth could well be different from your direction of growth. Uh, you, you know, that, that what, uh, what I am most interested in is what I didn't come in with, what, what wasn't my native-born wisdom. Th this is true in my dream work, too. You know, a lot of dream workers help people become lucid dreamers, that that, that is a target, uh, that they can bring their rational mind into their dream world. I tell the folks that work with me, you know, I'm just not interested in that. I, I want to bring the wisdom of my dreams into my conscious life. I don't necessarily want to take my conscious life into my dreams. You know, I, I, I'm already a little bit over swollen on the rational conscious side. I'm, so when I say that, does that ring for you that maybe you might have started with more gifts leaning towards, I guess what I'd call the deep waters of the woo-woo unconscious? I started in my 20s with a pizza restaurant, and then I was a private investigator, and I owned a hiking store. And so my world yeah. in my 20s was the world of the, you know, a guy in the restaurant hustling tables, you know, or hitchhiking across the country. I was so far from the woo-woo, I didn't even know it existed. Although my mother and my grandmother were women of letters, so I was aware of the power of language. And only when I was in my 30s did I start to think, well, language is an interesting thing from a storytelling point of view. So I really had no background in it. I was an adult returning student, went back to college in my 30s to UNCA. And that's when I started to wonder, well, what kind of power does language have? And what kind of relationship can I have with it? Because I love to interact with people on a language level. And I only came into, quote unquote, the woo-woo community. And I don't know if that's the right word or not, but the more spiritual inclined community. I came by way of Natalie Goldberg and Julia Cameron here in Taos. You know, Natalie was trying to recruit Julia to teach an artist way creativity camp in Taos, at Mabel Dodge Lujan. And Julia recruited me to help her produce it. So we all went out to Natalie's house and she made organic chicken and told us how to do it. And then we did it. And she was having her writing workshops, writing down the bones workshop. And Julia and I did the creativity camp. And that's when I started to encounter people who were thinking more in the 
what was called at the time the new age consciousness arena this was in the in in 95 and i at that point had been a performance poet traveling around the country performing poetry like a storyteller but not giving a whole lot of thought to the imagination and the rational mind i was more just happy to see the country and then when i started getting into it and started observing the imaginative mind at work by way of poetry. And then that's when I started to wonder, okay, I can't separate this. I can't take my rational mind, put it on a shelf and just leave it there. It's going to accompany my journey along with my imaginations, my dreams, and all of those other impulses. So that's when I started to think about, okay, I'm containing all of this. What kind of configurations do I have inside of my psychology that will accommodate these elements that will carry me all the way to the grave? And that's how I started to think about it. Well, you know, another way I look at it is who gets to the page first, because I would certainly not say that I've left behind my my critical, logical self. But. I really need it not to get to the page first. You know, I, I, I need the playful, mess-making child to get to the page first. What you said about Natalie Goldberg made me just want to tell you a story. Back when I was teaching creative writing at Loyola in New Orleans, uh, I, I would look at the... Uh, the, the student evaluation sometime and the most charming evaluation I ever got was something like this. Dr. Williams taught us things about writing I didn't even know were legal. And I know that he was talking about what I taught from Natalie Goldberg, you know, that he didn't know that that, that approach was okay to to just go for the gusto first and then bring the critic in later. Uh, I, I actually see it as a three-part process even, that you have your mess-making child part and your skilled part that knows knows how language works, and then your critical part that, that puts thumbs up and thumbs down, says, oh, that's good, oh, that really sucks. And, and that all three of those parts need to work, but, but I really need to be, I should say, what I am interested in is what happens that is magic. And, and, and magic for me feels like when things come in from something that I did not consciously know or plan. I'm just fascinated by that. Do you know the term uh, plotters and pantsers or or sometimes planners and pantsers? Is that familiar to you? Yeah, there was a fellow that had a blog for a long time, and I can't remember what his name is, uh, but pantsers are the ones who go by the seat of the pants, and then the planners or the plotters are the ones who come up with the outlines. And he argued, I can't remember what the guy's name was now, but he, he, I don't think he's online anymore. But he argued that in, that all scripts are engineered. All stories are engineered. And when you understand the engineering, you can execute your story with the kind of structure that will allow the reader to be confident throughout the whole story 
And he used Stephen King as an example. He said Stephen King never starts with an outline because he has it all in his head. He outlines it ahead of time. So he knows where he's going. And then the pansters are the people who don't have an idea of where they're going, and they just let the beats lead them to the conclusion. And I do know in screenwriting, which I'm not an expert at, but I've watched enough movies, a well-constructed screenplay does have that kind of um, that, that kind of bones where they know well, from the beginning to the end what's going to go on. And the bones could be engineered by conscious processes, or they can be engineered by something that's a little bit not that, that is in the realm of um, what some people would call the subconscious, uh, what one of my mentors called the not yet speech ripe, because he didn't like puffy uh, multisyllable words, the land of archetype. I do believe everything that works well is engineered, has bones, but whether those are consciously placed or materialize out of a fog from powers beyond what you thought you had several years ago uh, actually while I was while I was writing the night field I applied to go to one of the kind of classy science fiction workshops at the University of Kansas or Kansas University I can never keep those two straight in my mind with Kidge Johnson, who is a really highly esteemed writer of um, science fiction and fantasy. And I became aware that she was totally about outlining plot arcs, uh, the shape of story, uh, lots of uh, butcher paper and, and uh, post-it notes, and markers. And I said, hey, Kidge, you know, I am a total pantser. I, I've, I've never written that way. And, and she said, well, you can come and try it out. And at that time, I was thinking like, uh, well, you, you know, you add to your skills. You, you don't necessarily want to always just keep doing things the way you've always done it. So I thought, well, I'll try this out. Went through the process, admired the process, and didn't write again for a year. I, I took the fabulous butcher paper outline, hung it in my kitchen. It hung there for a year without me touching that story. And finally, I just took it down and picked it up again by guidance. And I just think that if you know where you're going, then writing is very much like work. But if you don't know where you're going, it's a whole lot like adventure. And I guess I really like that part. Uh, and not to say I, I don't wind up sometimes going down wrong paths, that I wind up taking out. While I was writing this current book, this character kept showing up that was called the Witch Queen. And I thought, well, crap, I've got to do something about that. And I, I consciously went in and tried to give that some kind of story and wrote for a while. And I thought, this is just crap, you know, and threw out a bunch of pages um, and, and wound up actually throwing out the whole Witch Queen title uh, in the, the book. That function is now 
simply called the system. Now, I had pictured it as this emblem, like Uncle Sam or something, powerful presence, because so much of this book is about the great mother, mothers, uh, evil mothers, mothering, all the different ways of being mother. It felt good to have a, a female face on this evil system. It's just more of a readable book if we simply call it the system. So that's what we wound up doing. You mentioned the mess, starting with the mess, and I'm in accord with you on that. I think mess is currency. Mess is really the great, the, the great value. And the messier you can be out of the gate early on, and even throughout the whole process, the better off you will be, because mess is actually perfection. We think of perfectionism as something we want to achieve. I mean, I've got to make it perfect. But the mess is the perfection. Allowing yourself to just wallow in what's there and seeing where it goes, to me, is, is a beautiful way to go about it. And then I do take your point of then you edit it and finally you put it in the rational mind and you deliver it as the, as the, as the final product. And that's why I say from the imaginative storm to the creative form. Not from the creative form to the imaginative storm, and you know, reverse it, you go the other way. And yeah. I find that to be liberating. And one of the things I think is really important to say in this conversation and others that I have with other people, people that are listening have very different learning styles. So one person might thrive in the tight structure. Yes. Another one would just find that to be so confining, nothing would happen. As you said, I just hung it on the wall and looked at it for a year. I couldn't do a thing. And another person would find the more freeform, imaginative messiness absolutely fertile, the place to start. But you flip them around, and the one who loves the structure gets in the mess, or the one who loves the mess gets in the structure, and they implode. Not unlike city people, People who live in New York City will come to Taos sometimes or to Western North Carolina, come to the great mountain cabin. We'll have a wonderful weekend, you know, listen to the rippling stream and feel the old mountains of the Appalachian gods around us. They get there and they're just terrified because they can't see anything. It's dark out there. What could be there? People from the mountains or from the country go to the city and they're terrified because there's too much. So it's that same so when people are listening to these conversations like you and I are having, it's really important for folks to know. And those of you listening out there, if you're wondering about this, the question you might be asking is, where do I fit in? And how do I fit into this? How do I find my style, my sense of play, sense of gravity in all of this? So Donna, Lee, I'm going to ask you that as a teacher, as a professor, as a writer, how do you address students with those with a range of learning styles? What do you say to motivate them? Well, the people I'm working with now don't need motivating. I find now I'm I'm mostly working with people in the context of doing dreams, doing dream work. When people are listening to their dreams and are opening themselves to the wisdom of their dreams, there's no need to motivate. It, it's, it's, it's inner guidance. It's just opening 
the envelope that contains the message. And okay, you may ignore this message this week. You're going to get another dream next week. So I'm not going to worry about that. Uh, the next week's dream may take you a little farther in, in the direction you want to go. So I think sometimes I'm seeing people get dream guidance about very specific things like like a dream a specific dream image may want to be a poem so that's that's clear and and typically that's pretty easy for people to make it happen recently somebody was just hurting in their process and as they worked through the dream the message came up and once they learned how their process the walls came down towards changing it if i were still in academia or or the school systems, I might need to worry about motivation. But now the people that wind up working with me, they're on their path. I'm just there to create containers and give reflections. If it were my dream, this feels like it might want to be a poem. This feels like it might want to be a movie. I spent a lot of time as an editor as well. I was doing developmental edits on different kinds of books, and it gives me a sense of what patches of words want to be, you know, what form are they leaning towards? You've just finished some work that you've done. I'm assuming that it's been edited since it's been published. I'm thinking about right now would be a good time to hear some work that you might like to offer us that we could we could settle into and and hear hear some of the story or stories. I, I would love to do that. And and speaking of editing, I just want to say that one of the great honors of my life was that this book, The Nightfield, that's coming out, was edited by Joe Fletcher. Joe Fletcher is one of those supernatural people for whom, and this I know is going to sound really mystical, but I just, it feels true to me that she has an access to the story in a, through a different door than I do. And then she can ask me the questions or request the changes where I find more of the story that is, that somehow exists objectively in some space that that she looks at and that I look at and it's my job to get it written and Joe Fletcher was not just my editor she was Ursula K. Le Guin's editor for 17 years and she said back when Ursula wasn't making money that she was doing it and Ursula Le Guin is one of the people that for me that's who I want to be when I grow up. And that's who my books have been most often compared to. So being edited by her was huge for me. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read you um, just the first page or so of The Night Field, get you into it. And you'll hear a little bit about the voice and we'll see where we go. And this is the section that starts the farm. Twin posts straddle the broad path. A lintel beam hangs between them, marked with odd faded symbols that give off the chilly feel of power. 
a ghost door, some kind of gateway, not a gateway, nothing behind the posts, nothing on either side, no walls, no fence, nothing for a gate to enter or exit, nothing but more empty land, flatter than any natural thing. The bootmen hustle me between the posts, and right then the light fades from the sky. Is it only that we crossed over just as the sun went down? I do not think so. There is something dark here, darker than simple night. I walk on, though. What choice do I have with my wrists pinioned like a water hens for the slaughter? These four men that box me in are older than me bigger than me and stronger. They have their sticks and they relish power and pain as if they have never dipped their hands into another's flow. So I walk. It gets darker still until I can make out a cluster of lights ahead of us. I hear in the men's voices that we are near the end of the journey. I catch the word that means dinner. Wherever we are, we are almost there. Somewhere nearby, a fangful howls. Others join in. We are being tracked by a hunting pack, and my knife is gone. There is no friendly trunk or vine to climb, no stick to swing, no rock to throw. Those puny rods that hang from the bootmen's belts, they burn like lightning when they landed on my naked legs, but they would be nothing against a pack of hunters just stalks of grass whipping their fur. And would those men even try to protect me or would they just throw me to the beasts so that they could get away? Do not die, Pinpoy. Refuse to die in this place. Not until you have finished. Not until it is done. The rough fabric of this dress they put on me stirs in a puff of night wind that brings me a hint of a smell I recognize death without decay. My hand twitches up as if to pull my wrap over my nose, but my wrists are bound and my wrap is gone. The feathers are gone. Everything is gone. I am far, far from the real, and there are no trees here. Oh my goodness, that's such a beautiful start. And I had read that when I was, you know, you sent that to me and I read it and and I love the way you read it because you fully understand it. You know, that's an interesting issue right now. In the last say three weeks, we have been wrestling with the choice of a voice actor for the audiobook. And it has been so fraught for me because I am such an auditory writer and I have such a clear image of what the voice on that page sounds like. And it sounds like me, but that's not who's going to read it. And um, so I've needed to let that go. Another place that it was fraught for me, the book was edited by British folks who had warned me that they were going to anglicize the text, which I thought they were just going to put O-U-R where I would put O-R and do their different punctuations. But 
no. It was it was a big deal, and tears were shed, and therapists consulted. It was it was rugged to to be anglicized. Voice is important to me. I have a friend named Jonathan Slater, and he lives here in Taos, and he wrote a book called Mad Jag, and it's about he and a bunch of characters in the seventies working in southern Arizona in the original high-end marijuana crops. They set the tone for what we have today, right? And they were were in it. And it's a novel. I'm getting around to the reading part. And it's very dramatic. And I don't know how those fellows managed through it, but they did. And Slater went on to be one of or the film industries uh, sought after location managers. So he's hoping to sell the book to one of his buddies who makes Netflix or whatever. And he probably has a pretty good chance of doing that. So we've been having a, quite a conversation about audiobooks. And his novel is long and it has a bunch of characters in it. And he has a British voice and he's pretty good reader. In fact, he's a really good reader and he does a great show when he reads and I did say to him, though, I said, you know, Mr. Slater, the problem you will have is sustaining it over the long haul because you're not trained to sustain. Yes. I've got a great voice on the mic. But if I have to haul through three or four hundred pages and keep all of those characters in mind, all you will see is me turning into a puddle because I can't sustain it. And that might be the case with you. That's why the professional voice actors, if you can, if they can get the sensibility that you have, they at least know how to run the thing through, which I don't have that skill. Absolutely. And it's really especially complicated for this book because this is what we call a second world fantasy. In other words, a fantasy story set in a world that isn't this world. So if someone comes across with a strongly identifiable regional accent, it will betray the the story. It will make people think, oh, well, this person... This is said in India. This is said in, you know, South Carolina. We can't do that. So we are right now, and I can't announce yet because we don't have her under contract, but we are right now looking at a very, very experienced audiobook reader um, that has a um, a very, she's Anglo-Caribbean and uh, has a a lot of flexibility in in how regionally anchored her accents are, although she's never done second world fantasy. It's its own problem. Think about the people that read voices that are not of this world. How are they meant to do that? It's it's an art form. And it's an actor's question. And Mm -hmm. the voice actors are actors without the cameras on them. They say, and I think this is probably true, the great voice actors can give you a Bronx accent in 1957. Then they can give you a, a, a Colorado rancher's accent in 1963. And then let's go to the UK and we'll pick four or five of those in certain time frames. And the good ones have that in their heads somehow. And they know how to deliver it. Not to mention at that level, they're working with a couple of directors, continuity people, sound boards, perfect mics that are cost 5,000 bucks per mic. 
all set up in an environment that's designed to support their momentum as they go along. And they're used to being surrounded by all of that. Whereas I'm not, and I don't know if you are, I don't think you probably are because that's not what you do. No, it, it really isn't. Although I, I am a good reader of my own work. I didn't even really push to read this book because what I don't have are the actor's chops. When you were talking about those folks that have, um, you know, all those accents, like they can just drop into it almost uh, unconsciously or, or naturally. I was thinking about Lynn Rosser, uh, Chris Rosser's wife in, in, in Asheville, uh, um, who was the director of the Jubilee Singers for all those years. And, and in fact, is, is doing um, an album of music inspired by the night field uh, that should come out this, around the same time that the book comes out. She is one of those people that could just have a united nations of different accents on board uh, it like she could be debating her own self in all of these different perfect regional accents it's some kind of um intelligence that i just think they're built with you know they come into the world with i i admire it i appreciate it i understand it and well, like I said, your voice is great. My voice is good. Our range is nowhere near what you're just you've just described. Just you just can't do that. But speaking of range, you do have a couple of pieces of poetry that you might have for us as well. But as we move toward the top of our hour, yes, you know, I I, I actually had a couple that I, I thought of sharing with you, and. This is a little weird, but I thought of sharing with you one I wrote in childhood, because when I see that I have just written a novel that has a lot to do with the speaking of trees, and I go back and see that in my in junior high school, in this little souvenir I kept that was our little version of a literary magazine in junior high school, there was a poem that had to do with the speaking to the trees. I just think that's kind of interesting. And even though what I'm about to give you is not a grown-up, uh, mature poem, I'm going to share it anyway just to celebrate uh, my, my beautiful trees. The poem I called Godparents. I thank God that I was born in such a place of trees, watchful weirwood overleaning, crooning spells of green well-being, and weaving green enchantments, weaving, weaving webs of magic, weaving, weaving tents of wonder with our leaves. That sounds a bit like Christina Rossetti, who has seen the wind, neither you nor I, but when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing by. Who has seen the wind, neither I nor you, but when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing through. You know, I was reading her at around that age. She probably sneaked in there. She probably got in. Well, would you like to hear another one? It's it's longer, but it's from the other end of life. This is uh, something uh, uh, 
since the pandemic, besides the dream groups, one of the things that happened was I convened a group of women in their 60s and 70s um, around the idea of exquisite living. What is exquisite living for us with the bodies we have, the financial resources we have, the age we have, and the time we have? And one of the things we got into was the idea of befriending our future selves. We're old. We're going to be older. And so how can we prepare the way for that? This is one I um, offered as a gift at Jubilee in Asheville when they, they needed someone one week. Hospitality. There's an old one coming. If you're lucky, she will come. If you can dodge the bolts of age striking thick and fast around you, hitting friends, hitting family, hitting people younger than you, picking them off one by one like shooting fish in a barrel. Who shoots fish in a barrel? But you're still standing, so maybe she will come. You have her itinerary, more or less, but you should get in touch about the arrangements. Where would she like to stay? What does she want for breakfast? What will be important when she comes? Really, you should send her a little note. Assure her that she's welcome and it will be okay. You'll see to things. A comfortable bed, making sure she's safe. It will all be okay. And if you do send a note forward on the sweep of time, Maybe she will write back. What does she know, that old, old woman camping on the shore of death? She walks its beach each day, gazing out over the waves, not just over them, but into them as they roll up across the sand towards her bare, bony feet. The waves are coming closer every day. The tide is coming in. Her beach narrows. So build her a little room, just what she needs. A single bed, a comfortable chair by a window she can look out and see herself walking on the beach. Maybe she's coming, but don't wait. Welcome her now. Settle her in the chair, a pillow behind her back. Tuck a lap quilt over her knees like you once did for your own mother. Offer her a cup of tea. To get to know the old one, speak slowly, clearly. To her, the world's gone strange. Words flap around her like seagulls, then sail away on the wind. Hold her hand, those bones that were your bones that speckled crepe that was your skin. Don't be afraid of it. She is not a stranger unless you make her one. Hold her hands. Keep her room uncluttered and the floors clear so she won't fall when she rises from her narrow bed to sit and look at the sea. Thank you for that great bit of wisdom. Well done, well done. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I would just offer anyone listening now um, that possibility that you might write a letter to the you of 15 years from now or 20 years from now. 
um, and see what kind of friends you can make with the possibility of an older you um, and, and welcome them. Donna Glee, I believe that's about a perfect spot to say thank you very much. And before we go, please tell people how they can find out more about your work. Do you have your website or whatever you have for us? I do. I um, I am at DonnaGleeWilliams.com. Uh, and that's just my name, D-O-N-N-A-G-L-E-E, -E, Williams spelled the normal way. Com. And um, there's links there to um, get to the night field if you would like to read a book that that tackles the horrors of environmental degradation and the industrial prison complex. And and yet I never once used the word pesticide and never once used the word cotton. Very proud of that. Donna Glee, thank you so much for being on Twice by Miles Radio. You've made it a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Donna Glee Williams. Her book, The Night Feel, comes out July 25th, 2023. You can find it on Amazon and in your local bookstore. Anywhere you look, you'll find The Night Feel by Donna Glee Williams. And I'm finishing up this show on Walter Parks' porch in St. Louis. You can hear some birds in the background. It's high summer, heavy, warm summer with beautiful trees everywhere. And when the sun sets, the night field emerges in this neighborhood. Night comes, the creatures start to wander around. There is a train track that passes by very close. So no matter whether it's day or night, you can hear the trains go by. I used to think the trains were rather romantic. I still do. I love the rails. I love the idea of the rails. That said, the people who work the rails, who work those trains, really, really do some heavy lifting work. And I've learned more and more about trains over the years and the, the work on the trains. And it's dangerous. Those trains go fast. Those trains carry a lot of weight. Those people work very hard. So when you see a train go by, you might sing a song about following the rails. Also, like I do, I think about those people on the, on the trains. And I am sitting here in Walter's front yard, looking across another lawn to some trees and beyond the trees. I know the train tracks are there because I've seen at least two or three trains go by this morning. So... As we close this show, I did want to say one thing. Donna Glee was talking about reading aloud, and I mentioned how my range was limited in reading aloud. And one of the best recommendations I can make to you for getting a sense of what I am talking about, the Harry Potter series read by Jim Dale who won at least one Grammy for it, and probably more. I don't know how many Harry Potter books we have on the shelves these days. Seven, eight, maybe? Quite a bit. Thousands and thousands of pages of Harry Potter and the characters in that book. So, if you really would like to get a sense of how Jim Dale reads, you don't have to get the entire series of Harry Potter. You can go online and 
Google Jim Dale, Harry Potter, and hear how he handles it. And the thing that I love about the work that he did on that book or on those books, he was able to keep track of the nuances of each character that appeared along the way in all of those novels. And if you've read any of them at all, or if you've seen any of the movies, you know those characters are vast. You have Dobby the house elf, and then you have Dobby the cousin, and then you have all of the wizards, and then you have all the photographs that talk, and then you have the ghosts that come through, and then you have he who must not be spoken, I think, Valdemort, I spoke it, that's okay, apologies, and all the other characters that are, are built into the, into the work. So when Jim Dale reads those characters, you recognize their voice each character's voice and it's consistent throughout the novels and it also another thing you'll notice as the story evolves and matures so too do the characters so their little nuances shift in the way they speak you recognize their voice throughout in the same way that I would recognize your voice if I knew you or maybe if I do know you I will recognize your voice the next time I hear you on the phone. The voice is the last thing to go. It stays with us all the way from the time we learn to speak until the time we say goodbye on this earth. So doing an audiobook is a particularly challenging effort, and it's something that I have a lot of admiration for. The people who do that, and if you are one of them, hats off to you. Keep it up. I love voice. I love language. And I would love to hear your audiobook, Nave at jamesnave.com, if you have one. I'd like to listen to it. So on that note, thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. Fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out there in Taos, New Mexico. Did you know Taos is 7,000 feet above sea level? It's really high to be on a flat surface quite breathtaking and the air is thin so it's a little hard to take a breath in Taos unlike in Asheville at 2,000 feet air is moist it's easier to breathe but both places are really quite dramatic so and and we'd like to thank or I would like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song I'm sitting on Walter's Park Parks' porch right now and uh, thank you Devine Dial for managing WPVM FM downtown Asheville. I, I really do appreciate it. And like I said, if you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you, and I would love to hear your audio, whatever it is. And wanted to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you have an inclination to write and would like to improve, get your chops up, build some speed, Figure out what you want to say. Let your voice find you. Let you find your voice. ImaginativeStorm.com is a good place to go for all kinds of resources around how to build it out a bit with, with what you have to say. Your storytelling. We're all storytellers after all, and that's what we do here at Twice Five Miles Radio. So ImaginativeStorm.com is the, is the place to go. And on that note, I would like to say thank you ever so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. If a train goes by, 
nod in the direction of the people that are working that train because they're working hard. And if you're out there on that big American highway or some highway wherever you are in the world, maybe our paths will cross. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.